Listen to WGN Radio's newest podcast, Behind the Badge, Illinois, hosted by David Hochberg. Behind the Badge, Illinois, views current events through the eyes of Illinois law enforcement leaders. Tune in. Visit WGNRadio.com slash Behind the Badge. I'm Raleigh James, and we've been talking about a variety of things since the White Sox aren't playing. I assume they will be playing tomorrow night, but if not, well, I'll come up with something else to talk about. But I'm looking forward to introducing you to Dr. Anthony Napoleon. So I was saying I pride myself on reading the books first, but this was one of those things where it was a last-minute thing because of a rain out, and I said, nah, he's interesting enough. And uh, then he was kind enough to send me a Kindle version. The only thing is I don't have Kindle. So maybe I have to, maybe I have to change that. Maybe you're getting me to change my wanton ways, Dr. Napoleon. Thanks for joining us. Nice to be with you. You know, it's interesting. The reason that I had to send a Kindle as opposed to a hard copy is because of the subject of the book, COVID-19. The printers are all working at half speed. Oh, of course they are. Absolutely. Yeah, uh, if, you, if you had a text copy, which is what a lot of authors do, that's fine, too. You know, they're usually written text copy on them or something, so I can't do anything with them, but that way I can see them. But in any event, uh, your history is fascinating, uh, even apart from COVID-19. Uh, board-certified medical psychologist, uh, you're in forensic psychology, 30 years studying the psychological impact of culture. And boy, that's uh, you're you're tailor made for this pandemic. I mean, people like you are just waiting for something like this. I don't mean that in any negative way. But uh, I got to ask, since you have this vast background in human nature, particularly uh, with regard to this type of situation, if anybody did, what has been the most surprising facet psychologically of the pandemic to you? Can I mention one thing that you said that uh, you probably don't appreciate how? how insightful it is. Uh, you made the observation that, you know, a guy with my background was probably waiting on something like this, which, in effect, when I received a call from one of my colleagues in China who reported that, quote, we're beginning to see this virulent pathogen for which there are no treatments. It was showing up in the ER rooms, and the doctors didn't know what to do with it in and around Wuhan, China. So I said to myself, look, I have an interest in these pathogens. I'm sort of aware I'm a student of pandemics. And so I began writing the book because I think I probably am tailor-made for this, and I understood implicitly what would happen with this pandemic because, and you and I may be kindred spirits on this, whenever there are great upheavals, whether it's 9-11 or Katrina, or in the instance of 1918, uh, the, uh, the conflation between World War One and the Spanish flu, I sort of knew how these things go, and that topic is right up my alley. So with, specific, uh, with a specific answer to your question, I understood that people would begin to game uh, our response to this pandemic. I had a good sense like a lot of people who study this, that this particular virus, the SARS-CoV-2, which is one of seven coronaviruses, four of which are rather innocuous, three are like members of the Manson family. And this particular member of the Manson family was Charlie Manson. And people started dying left and right. We didn't know what to do. And no sooner had it made its appearance, Raleigh, than politicians, social media people, um, everyone who um, has a, a finger in the pot began to game it. And the gaming included everything from hoarding masks, hoarding sanitizer, and you might find this interesting, the people who hoarded masks and sanitizers also hoarded toilet paper, which if you do like I do, you'll find that just absolutely fascinating. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's a story of the good, the bad and the ugly. The good are the people we know about, all of the frontline medical personnel who personnel who left the safety of their homes to go treat sick people. Dr. Lee Van Young, who was the first physician in China, who disclosed the presence of this virus, and he was punished by the Chinese Chinese Communist Party, and then later died five weeks later. He's a hero. The bad are the people who ordered masks. Uh, this guy who's under indictment in Brooklyn, 
um, who Feldheim is his name, Baruch Feldheim, who had warehouses full of uh, necessary supplies, and he was selling masks on the black market. And the ugly are those people who are literally using this to modify that thing we call the social contract, the glue that holds us all together, which I think and I know is something that you're particularly interested in. Yeah, I am, actually. And uh, I guess it was uh, Rahm Emanuel who first publicly said, never let a good crisis go to waste. And uh, th- this is manna to politicians, obviously. And so uh, once this was known, it, it immediately started to be bastardized for viewpoints. And that was that was clearly a situation. When I say once this was known, there, there are things we still don't know about this virus. And uh, that's, of course, part of, part of the problem. But one of the questions that was in your uh, your little sheet that your publicist sent around was, why won't people just believe in science and data? And I, I got to tell you, I kind of laughed out loud at that because we haven't been getting that in a pure sense. Uh, the, the CDC admitted that, oops, well, the PCR and IgG tests, we kind of combined those, and some are antibodies and some are active infections. And Dr. Fauci, with a straight face, said, yes, I misled you initially because we had to uh, had to preserve the masks for healthcare workers. And by the way, when, when that statement came out, I was incredulous. I, I, just, I just thought to myself, and why would we ever believe another word you said? And of course, that didn't come out in any of the talking head questioning. So we had have, whether it's by design, whether it's pointed, whether it's unintentional, uh, when you're talking about uh, facts, uh, people are playing loose with them, especially with regard to death rates. When we're talking about death rates and they don't bring up that in many cases underlying conditions are more likely the cause or a situation where people have uh, been had their death I guess death uh, consequence changed posthumously without an autopsy or people who were not even confirmed. You hear that and you start to say, why should I believe any of this? This notion of why the general public, the lay public, doesn't trust science, um, I think has a rather simple answer. It is because science has been gained. It has been partisanized. It has been manipulated by interest people, people who have an interest in modifying. My background, I defended a dissertation on how the human brain processes visual information and translates visual information into engrams. And I had a medical doctor and two PhDs run me through the gauntlet for, I think it was about three hours. When I published a study on the personalities and medical practice suits in plastic surgery, uh, the editor of the Annals of Plastic Surgery, again, sent the paper out to any number of scientists who peppered me with questions that reminded me of defending my uh, dissertation. And that's science. What the public gets down line is a funding result a summary by individuals who read and cherry-pick aspects, parts of a study, and then they will mold it. They will fold it like an origami expert and then shove it to the public. One of the things I have in the book is that how how human beings can be easily Mm mind-controlled, and one of those people was Edward Bernays, and in 19... He single-handedly changed the diet of Americans. Our typical American diet has been changed because of Edward Bernays, who happened to be the grandson of Sigmund Freud. And back in the day, toast, coffee, or tea, and a cereal. That was the mainstay breakfast. Pork producers hired Edward Bernays and said, we want to sell more pigs. And so he put together... A, a manipulative, psychological, mindset control gambit, and voila, we now have Jimmy Dean sausage for breakfast. And so the answer to the question, and you identified it, why don't we trust science? I would argue we don't get science. Yes. We get vested interests. And, um, you know, when the... Uh, 
part of my training um, included you know, I was chief intern on a on a major big city hospital where my patients were uh, suffered from mental mental illness and also had come in through the ER because they were drug users, and those people use IV rooted drugs, and those people uh, typically have on board any number of infectious pathogens. Well, my supervisor, who was um, a clean freak, uh, mandated that we wash our hands 15 times a day with chlorhexidine, and we always were required to wear masks. Later on, I worked at the California Department of Rehabilitation, and the same thing there. And then I did a fellowship in plastic surgery, where my surgeon boasted none of his patients ever contracted at what we called at the time an iatrogenic infection. We now them we now call them hospital source. I kind of prefer the iatrogenic, and so I couldn't even enter the atrium of the surgical theater without wearing a mask and gloves. So I understood glove and hand washing and masks. And when Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks and Dr. Adams, uh, nobody really knows this guy, you, of course, know him, the Surgeon General, when they came on and they said, well, you don't want to wear masks. I looked at my wife and I thought, well, these guys know more than my supervisors, my brilliant neurosurgeons, my brilliant plastic surgeons. And so when Dr. Fauci then later said, well, I have to confess, we did this, we told you that masks weren't effective because we didn't have enough masks for frontline medical personnel. And one of the things I write about in the book is that, you know, this is a fascinating thing, and Fauci and Burks, they took a look at the data, and they understood that if they said to the general public that if masks are going to save your life, people will hoard them, which, of course, they turned out to be accurate. But this notion of who do you believe is one of the major problems. It is a profound problem with trying to get the public to do things that are pathogen-aversive versus pathogen-friendly. Yeah, I, I, would, I would agree with that, and that's where we are right now. Now, what's interesting to me is the number of people who uh, say, well, this is what Dr. Fauci said, or this is what I heard on major media, so this is what I'm going to do. And, of course, that sets up uh, uh, wonderful arguments, as you well know. But what I, I've noticed of late is that what started out as fear, and I really firmly believe that fear is the greatest motivator, and I don't know if you found that in your studies, but I don't think you can uh, motivate someone any better than to make them afraid, but that fear has turned to anger. What's that about? Great question. Um, let me, if I may, address your notion about fear. Uh, there are volumes uh, written on that. I, in fact, in my book, uh, an Encyclopedia of Mind Control, I have chapters on the manipulation of fear by those individuals who use and manipulate fear. Remember, during the post-9-11, we had this scale. And one of the great things about manipulating fear to get people to do things that they otherwise might do, for example, let's say that I want to get the American public to give away well, parts of their Bill of Rights. Now, Americans are a fussy group of people. Even if they really can't name the Bill of Rights, they kind of have this notion that, wait a minute, you know, we're a country about freedom. So how do you get people? Well, you create a fear. But here's the key, the science of this, and this is why science is valuable. You want to maintain a free-floating fear, and you want that fear to wax and wane. You can't have everything on red alert because people will do what we call habituate on it. Right. And you can't minimize it, so you wax it and you wane it. It goes up and it goes down, but it never goes away. And then you provide a solution. And so the notion is you get the American public afraid, and then you offer a solution. What is the solution? Well, we need to modify your Bill of Rights. And, of course, people, try the, the human race, we will do anything to minimize and mitigate our fear. So, yes, you're spot on, and there are just volumes written on the details of how to manipulate this. And you've seen it here. 
Yes, a- absolutely. And when you're talking about that intermittent reward concept, like with the rats in the early days, yes, that's the that's the greatest way to hold somebody is the waxing and waning aspect of it. But with that in mind, it's even more interesting that that fear is turning to palpable anger. Well, that's also an interesting question and an interesting insight you have. Um, we have colloquialisms that capture a mental response to habitual chronic fear and being locked up and being told what to do. You've heard them. Cabin fever. Mm-hmm. Stir crazy. Uh, uh, one of the things that I joke about uh, when I was teaching classes, I, I would say, you know, at some point, all of us reach our Popeye moment. And some of my students at the time were so young, they didn't know who Popeye was. And I said, well, Popeye always had this moment in his cartoon where he would say, quote, that's all I can stand. I can't stand no more. Mm-hmm. And it's fascinating that at some point, unless people are taught and reminded and led by someone who garners confidence, they will easily spiral down to what my old VE psychoanalyst professor would describe as the primordial resting place. He would say, and it is true, that what you and I call civility is a very thin, paper-thin veneer, and you don't want to peel it off because underneath are the venal, fearful, and a, a cesspool of primordial emotion. I can I can just see you on the stand. <laughs> Absolutely. Clinical psychologist Anthony Napoleon, Ph.D., board certified in medical psychology as well as forensic psychology, 30 years studying the psychology of the impact of an evolving culture on individuals and society. So hopefully you've got a question. You can join us, 888-876-5593. That's 8888-R-O-L-L-Y-E. And if you don't have a question, well, I've got a few more coming up. Yeah like with regard to the plastic surgery book. It reminded me of Maxwell Maltz, so we'll get there too on WGN Radio. And I'm Raleigh James and we're talking, it's, it's fascinating to me, with a clinical psychologist, Anthony Napoleon, PhD, board certified in medical psychology as well as forensic psychology and an author, has written a lot of things and I have, I have so many questions that I've already forgotten half of them, but uh, Dr. Napoleon, so when I heard about your uh, work and the psychology of plastic surgery all I could think of was Maxwell Maltz's psychocybernetics and his belief that you were working on the psyche more than the physical. What do you think? Let me first say that you have to have the best bumper music in the business. <laughs> Thank you for that. Your guests probably, your your listeners probably don't know it, but the, the guests can hear the bumper music. And believe me, having done this many times. I'm, I'm very tempted to step away from the microphone, but here I want to I turn up the volume. So you guys, whoever is choosing, kudos to you. Oh, that's, a, um, that's me, by the way, and uh, Obscure Soul and R&B is kind of my life, and I actually have a little AM station. It's, it's a commercial radio station licensed and all that, but it's just my favorite obscure R&B oldies. I don't even try to sell time on it. I just play it and entertain myself. It's fantastic. To answer your question, uh, let me see if I can, I hate it when authors do this, but I'm about to do it, uh, give you a quote from one of my books, either Social Biology of Visual Image or Awakening Beauty, an illustrated look at mankind's love and hatred of beauty, or my various peer-reviewed journal articles on this. Plastic surgery is the only elected aesthetic surgery that is 100% motivated by psychological factors. Now, let me say that again. It is the only surgery, elective aesthetic surgery, that is motivated 100% by psychological factors. So, let's extrapolate, let's drill down on that. That means that, notwithstanding reconstructive surgery, not, notwithstanding the fact that, you know, I have an upper bleph that is blocking part of my peripheral vision, or I have totic breasts that are large and they're causing me uh, cervical spine problems. Put those aside. If I want to look better, 
if I want to look younger, if I want to look more vibrant, those are all psychologically motivated. And once you open that door, it's like opening a door to a house of mirrors because you have people who, and I think I've congratulated people on this. In fact, if you, you'll read ads, and yours truly invented the, the, those ads. They were plagiarized. Here's one you've seen. Look as good as you feel, right? That's a healthy motivation. Skin begins to sag. We have a lot of new technology. I want you to look as good as you feel. But then again, because as I noted, it is the only surgery, elective aesthetic surgery, that is 100% motivated by psychological factors. There are people who have profound problems. I'm talking diagnostically identifiable problems who make that short leap. It's very short that I'm going to be fixed by this plastic surgery. And there are any number of television shows now. I wrote that original book 15 years ago on this, and now it's been popularized. People who have obvious mental health issues are seeking a cure, not from the psychoanalyst, but from the plastic surgeon. And imagine, and I've written from the perspective of the plastic surgeon, imagine what that is like when you are a surgeon and you can see these patients come in, and job number one is to identify who is here for reasonable, healthy motivation, and who is here because they have a problem and they think the surgeon can fix it. Yeah, and that goes back to what Maltz was discussing in psychocybernetics. And I'm sure, as a surgeon, that's a situation where they almost have to be a psychologist before they decide to accept a patient. Well, it's interesting. I, I spent uh, two years doing that with a, a world-famous surgeon in La Jolla, California. And um, uh, if, well, if you would like, I will be pleased to send you the paper that is, has been cited thousands of times. It's the Presentation of Personalities in Plastic Surgery. Yeah. And it proposes to teach surgeons how to identify these patients. And I've identified the people who sue plastic surgeons, for example, I identify the source, the personality type. And uh, let me tell you, it's a, it's a minefield at this point in time, but absolutely fascinating because, and I was particularly interested, you, you may find this to be interesting, interesting, I didn't really have an interest per se in forensics. And so I'm in my medical psych fellowship, and we have a beautiful facility. We're associated with Scripps Hospital, and everything is great. And one day, the anesthesiologist comes in, and he says, hey, look, I have to appear in court. Can you step in for me? And it has to do with one of, one of our patients who's had her face disfigured. And, of course, like any plastic surgery practice, we had a lot of um, television media people, uh, topless dancers, mm -hmm. models, actresses, and... We found an inordinate number of people, attractive women, who would have their face cut. Caustic liquids would be thrown in their face. Mm. And I noticed this pattern. So I go into court and I testify on behalf of this patient and what these scars have done. And it dawns on, and so the, the lawyer said, well, you know, this guy, it's, this is an interesting thing that you bring up. And, you know, I have another case for you. And uh, voila, one day I wake up and I'm doing forensic work. And then, of course, one thing leads to another. And I uh, um, move out uh, from the plastic surgery to murder cases mm. and white-collar crime. But think about that. If you're an attractive woman, as I hear another quote, beautiful people are the people we love to hate. <laughs> and I said, well, I, in the original book, I have... Cinderella, people, people really they forget about this. And look at the original beautiful drawings. And someone who is an aficionado of uh, music, the blues of the 30s and 40s and 50s, you're going to love this. Those original Disney drawings showed very unattractive sisters. And Cinderella's sin was that she was beautiful. Right. And her mother and her sisters abused her. They made her do dingy work. And they went after her. And beauty is killed 
with a ruthless efficiency. I have a chapter in that book called, named Murderous Rage, and I go through any number of murder cases, including Jean Benet Ramsey, mm. where attracted, you know, we don't, we don't steal children. We don't commit pedophilia on unattracted children. People don't stop to think about that. Right. Attractive people are the target, and who are they t- targeted by? They are targeted by individuals who confuse the image with the person. And as I, uh, as I have said many times, much to my chagrin, because unless, uh, unless a person has evolved to the point where they can really digest this, they take umbrage at it. And it is when, from a female's perspective, when a man is looking at you and staring at you, he is not looking at you, he's looking at it. And what is it? It is your beauty. And the brilliant, late Joan Rivers, I don't know if you were a fan of hers, but I was a fan of Joni. And Joni said, there is never, there's never been a man alive who put his hand up a woman's dress at a party looking for her Mensa card. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Now, I want to interrupt. Isn't that beautiful? Joni, beautiful. Yeah. Exactly. Stephen Naperville wants to uh, join in on the action, so uh, uh, I uh, I don't see him. Uh, John yep, had him on there. I don't know if he's at WGN or he's here, but anyway, he's gone. Uh, so nope, John will figure this I'm out. Here. And I'm I'll here. Can you hear me? To... Hello? No. Oh, he's on WGN. Hello? All right. So you, it, you can either call us at 888-876-5593 or you can call WGN's number, and he did. So we'll try it. We'll try it again. And now we'll say, Stephen Naperville, you want to talk about masks and protests, so go for it. Yeah, hi. Sorry. I know I'm kind of going back a little bit from where the conversation was when I called in. But um, it's all right. it, was, it, was, it was a little bit around, like, the I think, the anger issue and why people get a little bit angry, or at least what gets confusing, which I think can lead to some anger. Uh, because you start wondering about rights. And, um, and it was, you know, when, the, when our leaders tell us that, you know, put on masks, stay away from each other, don't come within six feet, be socially distanced and be safe. And we have a tendency to believe that, that that's based on science and that's the way that we can get rid of this kind of terrible scourge, if you will, or at least minimize it. Um, but then it's okay to have mass protests and that that's not going to cause any problems. I think there's this dichotomous of thought that's given through our leaders that, you know, we, we start getting to the point that, well, do you really believe them or don't, don't you? Yeah, it's a very right? good Either point. one of those two cases I could buy into, but both of them together certainly seem like someone's telling a lie. Yeah, Dr. I think Napoleon. it's when people feel like they're being lied to is when people get angry. Sure. That no, that's a, that's a good, that's a, that's a real good point. And I'm sure you've picked up on that, Dr. Napoleon. We are seeing a very mixed message. On the one hand, you've got to wear a mask, but on the other hand, people en masse in a protest. Well, there's no problem with that. Thank you, first of all, Steve, for that great question. You know, those of us who look at pathogen friendly and pathogen aversive behavior and look at it from a public health perspective, It's rather dry. It's a rather dry subject. I think the science is unequivocal. I think the, and when I say science, and I'm going to be producing uh, for your listeners and other people a summary analysis of all the good data so that they no longer have to question what is being told to them. Either we're in this thing together or we are not. And we either all join in and engage in pathogen-aversive behavior, right? We do those things to mitigate the spread of this virus. And let me say something here, and um, it's a point that's often lost, and for the life of me, I can't understand why our leaders don't say this, and then I'll address Stephen's great point, is that SARS-CoV-2 and other coronaviruses and the seasonal flu are what we call droplet infections. So the viruses reside within droplets. A mask is very good at modulating and mitigating the bioaerosols, that is, your sputum and your saliva. A cough is 50 miles per hour, a sneeze is 200 miles per hour. Think of droplets within which the virions live as a parking garage. A parking garage, think of it as the mask, regulates the car. It doesn't 
necessarily have to regulate the people inside the car. I only have to regulate the cars. You park here, you go here, you can't go past the gate. Now, at the same time, we have this notion that our constitutional rights are being violated. I have a right to do this. And what I think both of you are going to love to hear is that in 1918, we had this flu that killed 600,000 Americans, and it killed about 40 to 50 million people worldwide. And what do you think happened back then? Well, we closed things down, right? We closed down the churches, we closed down the dance halls, we had funerals outside, and where it started in Kansas, the Wichita Eagle published curriculum. But guess what else happened? You're going to love this. There were anti-mask people. You are not going to tell me that I can't go to a bar and drink. It is my right as an American, as a person. I have a right to go drink. You're not going to make me wear a mask. And in fact, not only did you have formal anti-mask people, but you also had individuals who were having parties. They had Spanish flu parties. Exactly what we had going on here. And the fact that there is a discordance in Steve's mind suggests to me that he's processing information accurately, which tells me that I think our leaders should have said something like this. Look, I understand it's an infringement. I'm asking you to do things, but it's nothing that we wouldn't ask a surgeon to do. It's nothing we wouldn't ask an RN to do. And if we all do it, we will get out of this on the other side. We only have to do it for a short period of time. Now, one of the things, as an observer of this, and I think it's to Steve's point, and it probably adds um, an underscore, is that, you know, the way the gaming, the way the media entertainment complex looks at this, they judge things differently. So, on the one hand, the logical mind looks at these things and says, wait a minute, this doesn't add up. On the one hand, you can't go to a political convention. I get that. But it's okay to protest en masse and set things on fire. Well, wait a minute. We're interested in limiting and mitigating this virus. Why is this virus important? I mean, it's very serious. We lost 3,000 people on 9-11, and we went to war and spent a trillion or more dollars. This is like losing a jumbo jet every single day. For 18 months in a row, 250 people every single day for 18 months, day after day, week after week, month after month. So this is serious. This is going to cost us trillions. It's already cost us unbelievable amounts of money, and the, and the meter is still running. So why is it we, we, we have to say, have a uniform message? Look, I know you don't want to wear it. I understand that. I don't want you to have to wear it. You think, you know, I know a lot of, I had friends in the, in the surgery business. And, and, you know, it can be a pain in the butt when you're doing a 15-hour surgery and you've got this elastic on your face. And you see, the, you see the movies where, and it's not so much today because they have great air conditioning. Back, but back in the day, and I'm not talking about, I'm talking about the 1970s, and that was even before my time. You know, you would see the RN or the surgical assistant reach over and pat the, the, yeah. the sweat off the brow of the surgeon. You've got to be consistent. And I think that lack of consistency confuses people. I think it adds fuel to those individuals who are obstreperous to begin with and they have an oppositional disorder. You know, we see it in the movies all the time. You're not going to tell me what to do. You're not going to make me do that. And so the point is a great one, and I really appreciate the observation on the part of Steve. Yeah, All right. I, I, can you hear me? Can you still hear yes, me? absolutely. Sorry. Absolutely, Steve, yeah. you've got the floor. Perfect. Yeah, so I was going to say, I think that was, that was really well said. I think the addition to that that I would add is not only does it confuse the people, but it makes it look like the leaders are confused because of the mixed message. So that confusion not only exists on the receiving side, but it certainly exists on the sending side. And I, I think it's, it's those dichotomous messages that then start creating anger in the people receiving it. It's like, okay, effectively what you're telling me is you guys can't get on the same page with the same message, and but you want us to follow the one that you're saying is right at the time. And it, there's just no value to that. 
that I think that's the problem. I think that's essentially your point. I would just extend it also to the leader side, not just on the receiving side. Absolutely, Steve. Thank, I, thank you for calling. I, yep. Yeah, his his comment was fantastic because yeah. our our leaders shoot themselves in the foot. These are self inflicted wounds. None of this was necessary. We didn't have to go there. One of the things that I repeat throughout my book uh, on this particular virus and the psychology and the psychodynamics of it is that none of this would have been necessary. If we had a culture that was pathogen aversive, none of it would happen. Oh, I'm going to pick it up right there. I for example. Let me, let me pick that up right there. We're talking to Dr. Anthony Napoleon. He's the author of COVID-19, Human Behavior. His website, by the way, dranthonynapoleon.com. All one word. It's easy to remember, and you'll get more insight probably than you know, I'm giving you right now. But I, uh, I do want to hear about, uh, about that last comment in moments right here on WGN Radio. And our guest is medical forensic psychologist Dr. Anthony Napoleon. So I, uh, I stepped on your toes there. Continue. Well, I think we were talking about pathogen-aversive versus pathogen-friendly nominal public health behavior. And even though that's a mouthful, if you think about it, it is the perfect description. Nominal public health behavior is what most of us do most of the time. It's just the norm. It is the conformity. And one of the reasons that our politicians in the United States of America had to take draconian measures is because, as a rule, our culture is pathogen-friendly. And I compared this notion of pathogen-friendly to other cultures. And other cultures, those that I identified for illustrative purposes, included Singapore, Japan, and South Korea. Each of those cultures has a pathogen-aversive nominal public health behavior. For example, it is quite common in the United States of America to spit in public. (laughs) We've all seen it. Spit, and that little droplet of sputum has any number of pathogens, and they spit on the sidewalk. You do that in Singapore. By the way, I've never seen it there. It's a one hundred. It's a one hundred. It's a one thousand dollar fine. Whoa! If you are sick and you have a cough and you're sneezing, and you are in Japan and you cough in public, everyone stops what they are doing and they look at you. That's why you never see it. No one would ever think, even though we bow as opposed to shake hands in Japan. The thought of extending, and how many times has this happened to you, Raleigh, for someone who has a red running nose, that nasty sound that comes from someone, and they extend their hand to you, (laughs) here, touch my pathogen-rich hand, and Raleigh says, well, I love you, and I appreciate you, great seeing you, but if you don't mind, I'd rather not transmit those pathogens that you have onto my body. What do they do? They look at you as someone who is rude. In on November twenty second, okay, I'm going to stop you. I'm going to stop you right there and ask you if you will hang on till after the news to finish this thought because I want to hear it. Medical and forensic psychologist Dr. Anthony Napoleon, and we were just talking about uh, about culture. Speaking of love me, squeeze me, and all those kind of things, that we in America are virus friendly. We're a touchy feely crowd. So thanks for hanging on. Tell me more. Let me give you some data points that I think uh, you and your audience might find to be fascinating, especially when compared to Singapore, Japan, and South Korea. In the United States of America, the yearly flu cost, this is those uh, viruses, um, many of them related to what we're seeing today, they make that yearly run, and we try as best we can to match them and we vaccinate. But the yearly costs are $11.2 billion, that's with a B, dollars. Flu medicine, the average person, the average household, spends in excess of $335 per year on over-the-counter medications designed to ameliorate flu symptoms. As far as costs to employers, 
the group Challenger and Gray and Christmas, they looked at these numbers and they estimated the cost to be $9.4 billion in lost productivity. And this is the one that really tells us most about pathogen-friendly behavior in the United States. The common cold costs $40 billion per year. And by the way, that, those were 2001 data, and they are now up to $75 million per year. Now, that's just the common cold. Now, compare those numbers per capita to, to Japan, Singapore, South Korea. They're about 10%. So they've reduced 90% of that. And why do they do that? Because of consideration. It's also awareness, the teaching of science. I don't think we teach children these days in public schools to do what I was taught. Perhaps my education was a little different because it was science-oriented. But we would take a warm auger plate, and we would take a little swab, and we would go around to doorknobs. And we'd go uh, to cow racks, and we would go around to keyboards and computers and phones. And then we would take that swab and we would make an S, like Superman, on that auger plate. And we would put it in a warm oven, just slightly warmer than body temperature, and we would come back in three days. And then we would look at what we grew. <laughs> I don't think anyone would ever shake hands with a sick person again, not wash their hands, or think seriously about bioaerosols. All I need to do is take a person's cough, and you do it on a Teflon-coated surface, and I take a swab and grow it. You will never be pathogen-friendly again. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting because, of course, we have millions of bacteria and, and viral components on, and probably parasitical and fungal on our bodies at all time. And that, that's normally our ecosystem is within reason, but occasionally it gets out of whack. And, of course, when it gets really out of whack, that's when we hear the story about the person with necrotizing fasciitis from a paper cut. You know, I love that one, but right. uh, you know, it, it leads the news. But for the most part, I think we, we don't think of these germs as being problematic because they're, they're with us all the time. And so, yeah, America, maybe more than other countries. Uh, by the way, I love the school you went to. We never got to do anything like that. That sounds like a lot of fun. So, uh, but I, I think that we, we don't think about these things for the most part, one way or the other, and well, we're encouraged. I mean, how many, how many interactions do you hug this person or that person? It's sort of like a, a, a normal get, you know, a normal hello for many people. That's right. I spent some time down in New Orleans, and uh, you know, we don't say New Orleans, we say New Orleans. And the uh, social distancing, according to the CDC, is six feet at six inches in New Orleans. Right. And you are right. Most pathogens, most viruses, most bacteria are innocuous. We need them. But, again, referring back to an analogy that I used earlier, whenever I taught this, right, the Manson family is a fine family. Most of the children are fine. The mother and father are the salt of the earth. But that Charlie... He's a problem. <laughs> and you've got to think about that because you don't know. Back in the olden days, wherever you grew up, by the time you were 30 years old, certainly by 40, you had been exposed to every pathogen that existed in that environment. In 1958, for example, that first Asian flu pandemic, we had 500,000 visitors from overseas. So they brought their pathogens that were unique to the Middle East, Africa, uh, Northern Europe. Guess what it was in 2018? 79 million people brought pathogens that our immune systems had never even thought of. We had MERS. That was a Middle Eastern SARS, severe acute respiratory syndrome virus. Our immune systems had never seen it. And one of the interesting things about SARS-CoV-2 when you think about uh, immune systems is the reason that we treat with dexamethasone is because dexamethasone suppresses your immune system. You see, this is a very interesting pathogen because it not only is able to unlock our ACE2 receptors, that's how it breaks in, but it plays with our immune system, not unlike AIDS, for example, 
since uh, the human immunodeficiency virus, HIV, causes AIDS, and we got that from a simian, simian immunodeficiency virus, it first disables your immune system. And so you don't know. Yes, it's true. Most people on the highway are just fine. Most people are driving. They're just trying to get to work. They're trying to this. But as a forensic expert, I've often reminded people, you can't go for a 30-minute drive without passing at least five felons. And I'm talking about not just passing them at highway speed. They look over at you. And I, I, my students have come up and said, you know, I'll never sleep again. I'll never go for a drive and enjoy it. Well, I'm, I'm sorry. That's, those are the facts. Think about passages in the same way. So I'd rather be safe than sorry. It doesn't really cost me all that much to wash my head and, you know, be careful. In the long run, it probably doesn't matter, but I have this theory, and I've shared it before on, on the air. And yes, the tinfoil hat group is uh, certainly a, among my colleagues when I when I tell you about this. But when they first said that maybe this came from bats or maybe this came from a market, I thought to myself at the time, and by the way, I increasingly think this, and what you just said made me think it even more, is, well, what if it was something in the Wuhan lab? They're always trying to splice viruses to come up with antivirals or, or vaccines, and uh when you're talking about something like HIV, something that's bloodborne, if you splice that with something that is an aerosol uh, contagion, you're going to wind up with a real problem on your hands. So uh, while we don't know and it has nothing to do with how we would treat this, what do you think the likelihood is that this was engineered? And I'm not talking, of course, biowarfare or anything like that. Well, you may as well include biowarfare in that. I have a, a very long and detailed chapter on this because I have particular insights and, dare I say, special knowledge about uh, virology and the construction, reconstruction of nucleotides and the creation of these things. So, uh, in fact, one of the things that I answer in the end, I, I sent out the manuscript to people and one of the physicians who reviewed it asked me, he said, so... Uh, doctor, where do you think this virus originated from? And I get a long, detailed answer. To say that here in a short clip, I really can't do. But I guarantee you, reading that review and analysis, and I get into the doctors, I name the doctors, I actually identify the labs, the genomic sequencing labs. You know they're in every state in the union virtually. No oh, man. And the main headquarters, GenBank, is located in Maryland. And I talk about these things, and in fact, at the end of the book, I give the 29,881 nucleotide code for this SARS-CoV-2. So I go into detail, I talk about the doctors, I talk about the research, I get into the weeds on this. And for anyone who's interested in forensics, who loves a good Perry Mason, who loves a good mystery novel, I think you're really going to enjoy this. And it's important because it helps us understand the world we live in. All right. So I'll tell you one thing. Let me. Can I say just one thing? Yeah, quickly? sure. You're going to love this. Those nucle- nucleotides to build these viruses, you can buy them on the net. Yes, uh, <laughs> I have heard that actually, and of course on the dark. I show it. I, I give you. Oh, I give my. you the. I give you the checkout. I give you the web page. I you'll see it right there, and it give you the price, and they're not that expensive. All right, and so I was just looking up on Amazon, and it's already got two five-star reviews, uh, COVID-19 Human Behavior. You can buy it right now uh, as we speak, and uh, I may have to get this paperback version myself because I want to I read that chapter. But uh, I know it's, it's the short answer, but am I on the right trail? <laughs> um, it's, um, it's an interesting question. Yeah. Um, let me put it this way. This is a game of cops and robbers. And the robbers always think they outsmart the cops, and they always think that they outsmart us forensic sleuths. And they put in fail-safe mechanisms, and they put in little blinds and dead-in cul-de-sacs so that it's hard to drill down on this. Um, If I knew, I probably wouldn't tell you, uh, not because I want to be mysterious or, uh, you know, encourage in some manipulative way people to look at this. I'm just not a martyr. I'm just not somebody <laughs> who can get in my life. You're, 
Yeah, I, I like listening yeah. to, to yeah. your bumper music. Right. And, uh, right. you know. Relaxing yeah. in La Jolla, the hell with it. Yes, no, I, I get that. <laughs> By the way, someone, someone asked uh, and didn't want to be on the radio, that's okay, uh, if blood type is a factor with COVID-19. Because you hear that's one of the things you see on the web. Uh, I say no, but what do you say? The jury is still out. However, however, and this all has to relate to the angiotensin coenzyme 2 protein, ACE2. Yeah, right. It appears, if I knew nothing else, you said, hey, Dr. Anthony, you have to bet the farm uh, on this, and I can't beg off. I would say there probably is a difference, but not a significant difference. But if you'll allow me, maybe type A. However, however, as in everything, you know, I think it's important to get into the details. It is not determinative. If you have, see, because the, the average person listens is, oh, my God, I got blood type A, and now I'm, I'm doomed. No, um, heritability isn't inevitability. I may inherit a, inherit a predisposition to put on weight, but if I watch my diet and exercise, I can control it. So if you have type blood A, A type, A positive, you might have a perhaps the virus might have an easier way to unlock ACE2, but if you're careful and you watch your P's and Q's, you're going to be okay. Interesting you talk about ACE2 because, of course, one of the first things that we saw in a flood of emails back in March was, uh, oh, my God, if you're on ACE2 inhibitors for high blood pressure, you're doomed. And uh, I don't think anything came of that. But in your research, have you found any any connections with either conditions or treatments that uh, enhance this? And, of course, it's anecdotal yeah. at this point. What? Yeah, my hospital, um, where I did my internship, and I still am a member of the foundation, I support the foundation, a great hospital, uh, they're doing a lorastatin um, study on blood pressure medication and its relationship to ACE2 receptors and how it impacts this particular SARS-CoV-2. So the study is ongoing. There's a lot of logic, and I have no results, and I can't tell you what those are, but um, we're beginning to look at those things. We're beginning to look at a lot of things, and we're beginning to really drill down and understand how things work a lot better than we did back when I started writing the book. Yeah. And we really have some great insights. One of the things that comes up all the time that we hear, uh, and again, this gets political because uh, originally Trump had said something about it, was the idea of, uh, of using quinine. And uh, right. you, you have people on both sides of the aisle. Where I kind of stand is that, what the heck, do what you want to do. Try anything you want. But is there any, uh, any evidence that this is uh, worth investigating? So quinine is not hydroxychloroquine, first of all. Okay. So uh, those people who are talking about uh, uh, soda water no. and... Uh, Please, uh, you know, well, yeah. I mentioned that because there are people yeah. who are counting uh, that. Yeah. So hydroxychloroquine in some studies and in some people, when it is given early, it has a, ten it doesn't, it's not a silver bullet. Hydroxychloroquine is not the magic bullet. It is not like uh, taking a penicillin when you have uh, a particular STD and in two days it's gone. Yeah. It doesn't work that way. How however... In some people, in some patients, early on, before viruses multiply and reach a critical mass, it can have an effect. Is it a determinative, determinative effect? Probably not. Does it help? Some study says it does, and that's okay with me. But before you do anything, before anybody does anything, it doesn't hurt to talk to a knowledgeable physician who is in practice and actually doing these things because we have so many interactions. Hydroxychloroquine interacts with so many different things, and there are so many different things going on. I mean, what are the medications are you taking? Right. How old are you? What is your gender? All of these things. It's just, it's just more complex than that. That's why all doctors, when you ask them a question, they always answer the same way. Right. They go, it depends 
No, that's that's absolutely valid. And I'll just I'll just ask you one more question because I know you actually have a life and probably want to get back to it. So uh, here is the uh, is the deal. The next thing coming clearly is the uh, is perhaps a vaccine. And we're already hearing things like, oh, they're looking at RNA uh, vaccines, which are different than others. And uh, you have some people who are saying, I don't care if it's mandated. I am never taking this thing. And other people who say my life will be better once the vaccine is here. Uh, what what do you see coming down the pike, and do you see it mandated, whatever it is? Great question. Troubling question, because first, first let me tell you something about vaccine development. We have about five or six companies that are making great headway, and that is because we have computers that can crunch a million data sets per second. Right. And we now use memory ribonucleic acid. These are M. RNA methods to reconstruct these viruses. We used to use something called BAC, and we use bacteria. And think of mRNA uh, creations of immunogenicity with vaccines as the difference between digital versus analog. Okay? Digital versus analog. So we, we have made great progress, and what we're after is immunogenicity. And I swear to you, Stephen's earlier question about you know how politicians they they mess this up and we allow other people to confuse these things with the vaccinations. I have an entire section on the book. But let me ask you this question: You might find it to be interesting. When was the first vaccine created? What do you think? You know, I have no I idea. Okay, so let, let me think about it. First vaccine, and what would it have been for? Uh, and you know, of course, medical science is still in its infancy, but uh, I. I I want to go. You know, we all think about uh, about smallpox, but there was uh, there was something before that, cowpox. Now I don't know if that's it or if there's something before that. You're right. Do you know when that was? Oh, cowpox. That was before 1800. That's exactly right. What do I win? You get a gold star. Yeah, what do I oh, win? I just love stu- <laughs> I just love students like you. Yeah. This is wonderful. Yeah. So about 1790, Dr. Jenner noticed, and I mean we were in the scourge. I mean. Tens of millions of people died of smallpox. So if you think SARS-CoV-2 is bad, smallpox makes you bleed out from the inside. It's a dastardly way to go. So he noticed that, and you'll find this fascinating, the word vodka vaccine comes from cow. And he noticed that the milkmaids didn't catch smallpox. They seemed to have an immunity. So what Dr. Jenner did is he figured, well, the cowpox is very similar to the smallpox, and I'm wondering if there's some cross-immunogenicity. So he scratched the scab of a cowpox lesion from a milkmaid. I forget her name. I, I have it in the book. And I always miss those names. And he then scratched the skin of a boy who was going to be exposed to smallpox. And voila, the boy did not get smallpox. That's how vaccinations work. The notion is I want to take an inactive protein that tricks your immune system so that your immune system says, hey, I think I've been exposed to smallpox. I'm going to fight it without giving you smallpox. That's the entire notion. And Dr. Jenner cured and saved more lives than any other person in the history of the earth because of that observation that he made about milkmaids. With mRNA, that's what we're trying to do now. And it's a lot different. You know, when the, when the people who, and I, look, my heart goes out to them, and I understand the concerns, and, and you know, I, I give credence to anyone's concerns, because the fact that your concerns, I take it personally that I haven't explained this. Think of the old way of making vaccines as a 1950s automobile. Those kinds of cars you see in Cuba, right, that they paste and duct tape together. Now compare mRNA creation of immunogenicity to the Tesla. You see, that's the difference. 
Well, it's going to be interesting. Uh, yeah, I knew somewhat about the history because it had to do with the Ottoman Empire and variolation and all that kind of stuff. And uh, uh, that, that's when I realized that, you know, we're, we're still calling it the practice of medicine because they're still practicing. And then, of course, most of us are saying we don't want them to practice on us. We, we like to be think that, think that it's, uh, it's a done deal. And that's one of the fears, of course, right now is they want to do this quickly. And so a lot of people jump to the conclusion, well, they're going to do it without sufficient trials. So. So there, there's a number of things that are, are going to come up in this, and right. it's going to be fascinating. Right. To wa- I know you're going to be in the forefront of watching this because this will right. be political as well as medicinal, and this will come into a lot of questions, in, including uh, questions that you know may ultimately be decided by courts. With that in mind, the Supreme Court has already ruled, yes, they can forcibly vaccinate you. That came out of uh, the, the first 1918 big pandemic, but uh, it's going to be fascinating to see how it plays now and so we're going to be seeing you on all the talking heads coming up and also of course dr anthony napoleon dot uh, dot com but uh i i highly recommend it i'm i'm gonna plunk plunk down the money and buy it from amazon COVID 19 human behavior i can't thank you enough for spending so much time with us my pleasure you've been uh, uh just a delight and i again i love your bumper music okay good deal thanks so dr anthony Napoleon, and yeah, easy to spell, D.R. Anthony Napoleon, remember that, because I think that's going to be a great book to read.